Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Carol Werner. I'm the director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. We are very, very glad to see you here for this afternoon's briefing, where we're taking a look at the fiscal 2017 budget, uh, particularly with regard to the investments that the proposed budget would make at the Department of Energy in its energy efficiency and renewable energy office and all of the technologies and the interconnections that are all part of that. So we are very, very glad to have a panel to look at this issue again this year. Uh, this is pretty much an annual event that we've been doing for a number of years in association with the House and Senate Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency Caucuses. So we are delighted that they are partnering uh, with us with regard to this. And then also, um, I just wanted to mention that uh, coming up on July 12th, uh, we will all be partnering together with regard to the Congressional Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency Technology Expo and Policy Forum. So what we're going to learn about today, to hear about in terms of what is in the President's proposed budget, what the implications for that are, uh, specifically looking at the renewable energy and energy efficiency portfolios and how that really does affect what is happening um, in very real time in terms of looking at the very, very important energy uh, sector and energy factors that are in play. And I must say, this is a time, as you all know, of enormous change and very exciting things that are underway in so many areas. And we think that the budget also helps give us a real eye in terms of looking at that. So I am very happy that we um, have with us today to talk to us about the DOE um, Efficiency and Renewable Energy Budget. David Friedman, who is the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Office of Efficiency and Renewable Energy at DOE. And he will be walking through uh, the proposed budget, and obviously it's a very large budget, gets into a lot of things, uh, but I think this will be very, very useful in terms of helping us understand what the priorities are, why the kinds of results that we've been seeing, and therefore how that leads to decisions with regard to these important investments. Uh, David, uh, prior to joining EERE, where he oversees the whole broad uh, technology portfolio uh, to accelerate development and deployment of efficiency renewable technologies before coming to EERE, he served as the deputy and also the acting administrator of NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, where he dealt with a lot of, of very key and critical issues dealing with the safety uh, economics with regard to um, education, safety standards, enforcement, actions, etc. But one of the things that I think is really interesting with regard to his background, both at NHTSA and prior to that, uh, in terms of his involvement with various national academy committees and having served on the President's Hydrogen Technical Advisory Committee, is that he really brings together his experience in uh, all of this technology and transportation area, uh, which suits him very well for now dealing with this much, much broader portfolio of technologies and their deployment. David. 
Welcome. Thank you very much, Carol. Thank you, everyone, uh, for being here. It's a great opportunity to try to talk about what we're trying to do at EERE uh, in fiscal year 17 and why we've made some of the decisions we've made uh, in the budget that we have put forward. Um, as Carl mentioned, it's, it's uh, a significant budget proposal, and it's a significant budget proposal because we've done a lot of good work, but there's a lot more good work we need to do uh, to uh, address some pretty significant challenges. Uh, I should also note, because it's a big budget, what you're getting today is really just a taste. Uh, we'd be here for way too many hours if we were going to go through every little detail, and even at that, uh, there's a lot to cover, so I look forward to any questions folks may have, and certainly uh, if folks want to get into more detail on any particular piece, we can follow up uh, with more information as needed. There we go. Okay. So, uh, as I mentioned, EERE is, it, we have a broad set of work that we do. We cover sustainable transportation. We cover renewable power we cover energy efficiency. Each of those offices in and of itself could be its own office at the Department of Energy. But I'm really glad they're not because there's so much crossover, there's so much interaction that we need with all of these different areas of technologies that I think we would be able to do much less if we weren't knitted together the way we are. And that's part of what this slide is really intended to, to give you a sense of We've got our individual groups with their individual techno technology focuses within them, but we also have a core of cross-cutting efforts, whether it's on manufacturing uh, or energy and water uh, or grid modernization, that pulls together a lot of the different pieces. And then if you look at the outer rings, of course, um, even that is not enough because simply focusing on the details of technology doesn't get you the full answer. We have to understand the policy implications. We have to do good analysis so that we can plan for the future, so we can have multi-year uh, program plans to guide our, our targets, to guide our investments. And then, of course, you have the unsung heroes on, on the outside ring, which are all the people who literally make EERE uh, work every single day. And it's very important that we have the resources uh, to keep them moving, because we couldn't do all the work in the bullseye uh, without the folks uh, supporting our mission each and every day. Um, when we look at our work, and the reason why these are the areas we focus, is because we need to make a difference. We need to make a difference in each of these key technology and energy use areas. And I think we have made a difference. If you look at the data, we've commissioned an independent analysis to understand how much of a return on investment have we delivered in our portfolio. So there was a sampling of about one-third of our portfolio. And when folks dove in and look at the numbers, as you can see here, we were able to deliver in that sampling a 14 to 1 benefit to cost ratio. And that translates into an annual return on investment, an annual rate of return of 20%. So fundamentally, I would argue we have been an incredibly good investment of taxpayer dollars. And we want to continue that trend and hopefully even go even further. Uh, you can see with the further numbers that obviously those, our return is going to vary both on the stage of the technology and the area of technology. On combustion engine R&D, where we've had many years of investing in the technology, and now that technology, when it comes to reducing emissions and improving efficiency, has really proliferated in the marketplace, 
you can see there we've got close to a 70 to 1 benefit to cost ratio. On the solar photovoltaic side, where you're seeing incredible increases in the market share, but still, I would argue it's, it's in its early years. Um, we've only gotten a 3 to 1 benefit to cost ratio, which I would argue is pretty good already, but you can expect that number to go up by at least an order of magnitude as we see the, uh, the solar market expand using technologies and, uh, and processes that we've helped support. I want to give you a sense of uh, where some of that progress is showing up. And for the last few years, we've produced a report called Revolution Now to help people understand how fast things are changing. And if you think to just five, ten years ago, how dramatically the world has changed when it comes to renewable power and energy efficiency. <coughs> things like solar power, wind power, even battery electric vehicles and LEDs a lot of folks thought of these as science projects. They, they thought of them as something that maybe someday in the future we'll get to them, but they're not anything that folks are going to see, certainly in their lifetimes. Instead, what we've seen with a concentrated focus on RD&D to help drive down the costs of these technologies, the progress has been incredible. I mean, just a few of the examples here. Uh, one of the, the quote-unquote uh, least ambitious uh, cases here is in wind, where we've seen a cost reduction of about 40% since 2008. And then you get into uh, PV, where you're talking 50-60% uh, reduction in cost of batteries. We've helped drive down the cost of batteries using technology developed at Argonne National Labs and ad research projects that we've been involved in with industry by 70%. But even there, we know we're not done. We're targeting $125 per kilowatt hour, maybe even ultimately $100 per kilowatt hour, to keep driving down the cost of those batteries so that they can become a great choice for consumers in the marketplace. And then the big winner of them all are LEDs, which we've seen a 90% drop in costs since 2008. 90%. You know, there was a time where people would walk into Home Depot or, or one of the other big box stores and, and debate in their head, should I switch to compact fluorescent? Is it, is it really worth it? Those debates are long gone, but the LEDs are now more efficient and cheaper in many cases than compact fluorescents, and they last longer. And a lot of that is a result of R&D that we in the industry have sponsored that have just fundamentally revolutionized lighting technology. Of course... A revolution in cost is great, but the impact doesn't just happen from cost. The impact happens if you also see a revolution in the marketplace. And that's what a revolution now does also show, is that when you look at the marketplace, we're seeing significant increases in adoption across the board of all of these technologies. Wind power now um, 30, over 30% 30 of new generation. Um, distributed power, uh, distributed PV, and utility-scale PV, each on the order of 8 to 10 gigawatts. And a lot of that growth is just over the last few years, thanks to programs at EERE, as well as programs in our uh, separate loan program office that has helped catalyze uh, these key projects. Um, LEDs are now close to $80 million, and as I said, they're, they're flying off the shelves now. You literally have companies who are abandoning compact fluorescents, not because of regulations, but because the market doesn't need them anymore. They're better off investing um, in LEDs. And then electric vehicles. 
Um, we're talking about reaching on the order of 300,000 EVs in 2014. And despite um, what you may have read in the press about how bad EV sales were in 2015, another 100,000 was added um, to that number. So a one-third growth in the EVs on the road in a year where gas prices were on the order of $2 a gallon. I'm actually pretty impressed um, that, that we saw that large of a sales given a drop in gas price of about half or more uh, in some parts of the country. So that technology is, is going strong, but obviously needs more input, more R&D to keep that technology moving forward. So we've made big progress, and I think we're really proud of the role that we've had um, within that progress. But, and this is an important but, we are far from done. When you compare that progress to our national goals, there is a lot more work to do. And President Obama has been very clear that our nation has an opportunity to really step up in many key areas, whether your focus is greenhouse gas emissions, where our target is uh, 26 to 28% reduction by 2025, and by the way, a 17% reduction by 2020, which we are on track for, and an 80% reduction by 2050. When we're thinking of 80, a world of 80% reduction, we need to think about another revolution or two in technology to ensure that we get there. And I'll talk about that part of the revolution in a little bit. Doubling energy productivity by 2030. And that's not just an efficiency target, that's an economic target. Because if we can double the amount of work we get from a unit of energy, our businesses, our companies can make a lot more money. Because instead of spending that money on energy, they can invest that money in better products or better profits. Uh, in addition, we've got a target of reducing net oil imports in half by 2030. Uh, sorry, by 2020. We're, we're definitely on pace for that. One could argue we're even uh, well ahead of the pace for achieving that goal. And then, uh, of course, as part of the President's Climate Action Plan, we set out a goal to cut uh, CO2 emissions by 3 billion metric tons it's rounded up um, cumulatively by 2030 through energy efficiency standards. And each and every year we've been making significant progress, chipping away, chipping away at that target. And again, not just delivering CO2 savings, but in appliance standard after appliance standard, saving consumers and businesses a lot more money than it costs to make the improvement, enhancing the economy while reducing costs and reducing emissions. But you know what? Maybe oil isn't your thing. Maybe climate isn't your thing. Um, maybe energy savings isn't your thing. But American jobs and American competitiveness is something I think each and every one of us can agree on. And when you look at investments in R&D across the globe, the core fact of the matter is we are behind. There is a race right now, a clean energy race, and China... Japan, Germany, countries all over the world are investing to win that race. Why? It's not just simply because of climate change or energy independence. It's because winning that race means positioning yourselves for more jobs and a much stronger position in the economy. But when you look at this chart, China is outspending us. Japan, if you normalize this per GDP, their GDP is, I think, on the order of uh, a third of ours, maybe a, a little more. Uh, Japan is outspending us. 
Uh, Germany, on a GDP basis, is, is on the same order of magnitude or maybe even higher than us. So it's clear the clean energy race is on, and we are not investing enough in that race right now to ensure that we're going to win. We've got amazing talent in this country, amazing innovators, amazing scientists and engineers, and I have a lot of faith that they're going to do, continue to do great work with the investments we're making, but there's a need for greater investments to ensure that we can win that race. Um, and here's another example of that. Um, if you look at the pharmaceutical industry, they are investing about 20% um, of their sales back into R&D, churning out more and more profit. Um, aerospace and defense, really critical areas to our nation, investing 11% of sales back into R&D. Computers and electronics, 8%. Cars, over 2%. Can anyone guess where energy is? Close to 0%, <laughs> if you round it down. Less than half a percent of the uh, money that comes in through sales is spent on R&D. Now, yes, part of this is because you've got commodities with you know, embedded price, in, embedded value you know, in the oil, etc. But even compensating for that, we are far under-investing in energy compared to other critical parts of our economy. We've got to do more. And that's really the vision and the mission of what EERE is trying to do. When we look at the large scale, we just recently released a, a strategic plan, and I encourage everyone to, to go online and uh, download a copy of that so you can get a better sense of how we're looking at all of this. But our big picture vision is to support a strong and prosperous America powered by clean, affordable, and secure energy. And again, that's being done because that is essential to our nation's competitiveness and our economic strength. And so at EERE, our mission is to create and sustain American leadership in the transition to a global clean energy economy. Again, that race is on. We want to make sure that we win. Uh, our strategic plan and all of our work is guided also by a lot of other key documents from the President's Climate Action Plan, <coughs> Secretary Moniz's uh, strategic plan, our quadrennial energy review, and our quadrennial technology review. If you, if you aren't familiar with any of these, I encourage you um, to look at them, especially if, if you're, like me, a technology geek. The QTR is just a wealth of information about the opportunities that are out there on technologies. And we very much have used the QTR as a guide for key new areas to invest in within our budget. So what is our big, broad budget strategy? I've tried to kind of divide it into three core pieces, but the reality is there's a lot of overlap between these. The first is at, at the core, as I've said, we need to do more. And it's not just me saying that. It's not just Assistant Secretary Danielson saying that. It's Secretary Moniz. It's the President of the United States. It's 19 other world leaders who in November came together and stepped up and said globally, we need to have a target of doubling clean energy R&D over five years. And this is China. This is uh, Germany, Japan. These are all the major nations we're competing with. They're also promising and planning to double their clean energy R&D. So again, we've got to do this just to ensure that we can keep the lead when it comes to the clean energy economy that's moving forward. Uh, when we look at what we're talking about in this, we're talking about R&D &D, um, across the full spectrum of our applied work at EERE, whether it's 
renewable energy, energy efficiency, and sustainable transportation. <coughs> and I should also note, this isn't just about government R&D. You've got key major investors um, who are also looking at making significant expansions. Folks like um, Bill Gates, for example, when we came out with our mission innovation announcement, um, he and others came out with the Breakthrough Energy Coalition. You've got uh, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, SoftBank Group Corporation CEO uh, Masayoshi Son from uh, Japan. So you've got a lot of different folks on the government side, but also in corporate uh, side and investor side who are saying we need to increase our R&D and we need to make sure that R&D is investable R&D, not just cool science projects, but projects that can be handed off ultimately to investors who are going to put money into them and turn them into commercial products. That's critical to us and critical to success. In addition to that, we need to keep working in areas to en uh, enhance our efforts to reduce market barriers. We can do the best job in the world at getting the cost down and the performance up, but there can still be too much red tape or too little information or other challenges that block these technologies from getting into the market. And we see a key role we can play there. Finally, uh, the President is also putting forth the 21st Century Transportation uh, System Initiative, which is focused at some of the really unique challenges that we face in the transportation system. You, you saw all that progress on renewable power and the key progress on EVs, but there are still some big hurdles in transportation on the R&D side, but also on the infrastructure side that we have to overcome to tackle that side of things. Now, here's our big picture budget summary. I'm not going to go over every single one of these lines, but I want to give you what the big story is here. First of all, you can see across each of our technology areas, we've got a roughly equivalent, somewhere around 30% increase uh, proposed in those budgets. Why? Because we see opportunities in each and every one of those areas. Though you do see in transportation, the increase is a little bit larger given some of the larger barriers we see uh, in that space. Um, you also see here that we've got our, some key mission innovation cross-cutting initiatives, and the increase we're requesting for, that, for those is on the same order of the increase we're looking for in each and every one of the technology areas, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. So overall, we're proposing a 40% increase in our budget. Uh, you can see right now, as of 2015, we crossed the $2 billion mark. And I want to thank uh, everyone on the Hill who helped make that happen. That represented an increase in our budget in, obviously, very tight fiscal times. But I think it recognizes that folks get the same message I'm providing today, which is we still need to do more. The challenges are too big. The opportunities are too big not to continue increasing our investment in this space. So let me talk a little bit more about some of the unique pieces under Mission Innovation. Mission Innovation really flows throughout all of our budget, all of our RD&D budget, but there are some key cross-cutting issues uh, that I want to make sure to highlight. So um, in terms of it flowing across all of our budget, the baseline in the way we're looking at our RD&D activities for Mission Innovation is about $1.4 billion in 2015, sorry, 2016. Our proposal, then, is about a 47% increase in our, our, the RD&D side of our budget for mission innovation. So without a doubt of that 40%, more of that increase is targeted directly at RD&D than the other parts of our portfolio. And as you can see here, I won't go into these, but it touches a lot of different key areas within the work that we do. Now, in terms of the cross-cutting work that we're doing, 
Um, part of this came as a realization that if we really want to be innovative, we need to think about different ways of doing business. And so we've targeted several cross-cutting efforts that are trying to shake up the way we do our R&D. The first one is to acknowledge the fact that if you look around the country, you cannot find a one-size-fits-all solution. If you look across the nation, different regions have different energy resources, different intellectual resources, different policy goals. And what we're proposing here um, is $110 million that would go into grants to support 501c3s, basically um, nonprofit regional entities that would drive innovation, R&D innovation, market-ready R&D innovation, sorry, investment-ready innovation, tailored to the needs of that specific region. Um, it's something that was called for uh, from the President's uh, Science Advisory Council previously. National Academy of Sciences has pointed some in this direction as well. And critically, we don't want to restrict this effort just to, for example, renewable energy. Because for some regions, natural gas may play a bigger role. Coal, and therefore uh, carbon capture and storage may play a bigger role. Nuclear power may play a bigger role. So we're trying to uh, look at a novel way of looking at an all-of-the-above approach and letting the regions drive those priorities rather than us uh, here in Washington driving those priorities. The other pieces um, are more focused in, in, in at least two out of three cases on energy efficiency and renewable energy. The first one is a next-generation innovation effort. Right now, much of our research is targeted in silos. We're trying to break those silos through some of the cross-cutting efforts, but one of the things we're realizing is there could be some significant advantage, for example, within sustainable transportation, so across electric vehicles and fuel cells and biofuels, in supporting and opening the door to new innovative ideas that look at the transportation sector as a whole instead of each individual technology area. So opening the door to ideas that maybe before the individual offices wouldn't have been able to support because they're narrower than the idea itself. And so we've got about $60 million that would be targeted at each of the major offices, transportation, efficiency, and renewable energy, for more systematic approaches to things. Then we've got our energy technology innovation accelerators. Really, this is trying to take the model of Cyclotron Road nationwide. Cyclotron Road uh, is an effort um, out in California to connect the laboratories to up-and-coming uh, innovators who maybe five, you know, before the Great Recession, they could have tapped into venture capital and angel investors who would be happy to take a risk on them. But then who all too quickly realized that investing in energy is not the same as investing in Silicon Valley. You don't get uh, a new technology every six months, every 12 months. You get a new technology every six, 10, 20 years. And so you've got to have more patient investors, and there have been a lot of challenges in that space. So those folks haven't been able to get the resources they need. Well, let's match them with the world-class resources of the national labs and create an opportunity for uh, some riskier ideas to get the resources they need to potentially turn into a commercial product. And we've seen some great successes out of Cyclotron Road, and we think there's a great opportunity to take that model to all the, the labs across uh, the US. Finally, small business partnerships. 
you hear everyone say over and over again how small business is such a critical engine in our economy. We agree. Let's, but part of the problem with that engine is it doesn't have enough R&D fuel because they're too busy trying to just keep, keep their doors open. This is a way to give them uh, some R&D fuel, boost them up, get them in touch with the national labs, again, connecting small businesses to those world-class facilities so that they can accelerate their innovation and create new jobs and communities throughout the United States. We've been doing this uh, at, at EERE, targeted uh, at, at a smaller scale. This would take this up a whole new level across all the national labs and really hopefully catalyze some good jobs and some good technologies. Okay, now let's look at some of the more traditional part of the portfolio that encompasses both mission innovation um, and some of the uh, market barrier activities. I'm going to step through these relatively quickly because I want to make sure that I'm not uh, talking all day here. Um, so I'm just going to give you the highlights. We can go into more detail. Um, as you saw before, we're talking about a 30% increase uh, in our investments in renewable power. Some of the key examples of the work we're doing in this space are uh, advanced power electronic solutions for distributed photovoltaics. Uh, one of the things we found in general with, with, uh, with distributed PV and PV in general is soft costs can really get in the way. These are the costs other than the costs of the uh, PV unit itself, whether it's red tape or the balance uh, of plant that you need to help make the system work. If we can improve the power electronics for photovoltaics, bump up the efficiency, drive down the costs, we can make distributed PV even more cost effective uh, than we're seeing today. Offshore wind, we, we're investing significantly in demonstration efforts to move the offshore wind uh, potential forward. We have massive energy potential off the coasts of our nation but the challenge is it can be pretty expensive. Our demos are targeted at, at creating a lot of real-world experience in this space where we can learn a lot, but already in going through those activities, it's clear to us that we need some more applied RD&D to get more of those costs down so that offshore wind power can be a great cost-effective solution, not just in key niche areas, but up and down and across the coasts of the United States. Europe and other countries are investing in this area. Again, we've got to make sure that we are not behind, not just catching up, but we are in the lead with this technology. Because if we can get great stuff to work here, that also means instead of having to bring parts in from overseas, we can generate jobs here in the U.S. and ship those parts to other nations who are looking to invest in this space. Forge, that's our effort to really revolutionize geothermal energy revolutionize and test a whole variety of new drilling techniques in, in uh, different, uh, different kinds of uh, rocks, different surfaces, different subsurfaces. Um, we're going to make a choice uh, in FY17 and down-select to one key site where all that innovation is going to happen. And then finally, on, on the, the uh, water side, uh, we need a better test facility so that as we move forward with MHK and other key water technologies, that we've got an open water test facility that can help move these, uh, these technologies up in scale, up in scope, so that we can figure out which ones are the best, uh, which ones can compete, and which ones ultimately can scale up to large-scale projects. Next, we have energy efficiency. Here we're targeting about a 27% increase in our core work here. And remember, when we talk energy efficiency, it's not just simply about air conditioners and lighting. It's also about our manufacturing system. 
we want to make sure that our uh, manufacturing system is using less money. Because again, just like using less money on lights and HVAC, if you use uh, less energy to build a car, um, build a wind turbine, you're going to make more money and be more cost competitive, both uh, in the marketplace here and then around the world. So we want to keep investing in our clean energy manufacturing uh, innovation institutes. Uh, we also want to make sure that the United States government practices what we preach. So we want to continue expanding our investment in our federal energy management core activities, uh, helping Department of Defense, Agriculture, DOT, DOE invest in saving money throughout uh, those organizations. Again, better use of taxpayer dollars and also being kind of a, a shining light on where the great opportunities are for businesses and consumers. Low global warming potential cooling. Right now, when you have an HVA system in your car or in your building, you're using a fair amount of energy to, to deliver that cooling, which means emissions upstream, but you're also using refrigerants that at some point in their life, a lot of them are going to leak. And when they leak, their global warming potential is tens, hundreds, and thousands of times that of carbon dioxide. And they aren't always all that efficient. We're investing in not just new refrigerants, but solid-state refrigeration and cooling technologies that can be more efficient and can basically eliminate the global warming impacts of refrigerants themselves. So again, delivering win-win-win scenarios on climate, on energy use, and on uh, people's pocketbooks. Uh, weatherization, we provide critical benefits to Americans all over the country to help them lower uh, their utility bills and improve public health uh, at the same time. Sustainable transportation. Here, as I said, we're proposing probably the largest increase, about 34%. We've got to double down on our investments in electric vehicles. We've got to drive uh, the cost of batteries down to at least $125 per kilowatt hour, if not further. And we've got to make sure that there's a, a broad knowledge base of information about EVs, about their potential, uh, so that the market barriers that exist uh, to EVs can be broken down. Supertruck 2. This is Supertruck 1 was an amazing success. We set the goal of boosting fuel efficiency of 18 long-haul 18-wheelers by 50%. We actually got one team over 70% and one team over 100%. Now, um, through congressional direction and frankly just because it's the right thing to do, we want to move, we're already moving to Supertruck 2 where we're going to challenge all the teams to get over 100% and to drive up the cost effectiveness, drive down the cost, drive up the cost effectiveness of those technologies. Uh, we're starting that program this year, and uh, next year's budget is going to continue that program going forward. Fuel cells. We've helped cut the cost of fuel cells already by 50%. Uh, that's enabling companies like Toyota, uh, Honda, uh, GM soon, to bring fuel cell vehicles to the market, but fuel cells are still too expensive. So again, we've got to continue investing in that space to drive down those costs. We also have to help uh, make it easier to get fuel cell infrastructure out there, and we've developed some great technology for that. Then finally, biofuels. There's great opportunities still for biofuels, but that industry has faced a lot of very technical challenges, uh, some of which is just simply <clears throat> What's the right combination of organisms to most effectively uh, turn biomass into a bioproduct, whether it's a fuel for a jet engine or a car or uh, for manufacturing the case of a computer? Um, we want to kind of invest in the same kind of, uh, kind of 
technologies that are used in, in the genetic space uh, to rapidly prototype uh, molecules that can potentially be used to revolutionize biofuels into the future. So that is a very fast and very high-level overview uh, of those core programs. I also want to spend some quick time on the 21st Century Clean Transportation Plan Initiative. So this is something that uh, the President has really <coughs> pointed to the fact that transportation is a key source of greenhouse gas emissions. It is still, um, depending on which part of the sector you're talking about, 70 to 90 percent reliant on oil, one single fuel. And while oil prices are low today, I can't guarantee you what the oil price of the future will be, but I can guarantee you it will change again and again and again. Because over the last four years, we've had at least six oil price spikes that have been tied to either economic uh, slowdowns or true recessions. It's going to happen again. And um, we need to really double down on our investment to help insulate our economy from those price swings and from the emissions uh, that result. So we want to invest in improving the efficiency of manufacturing for batteries. We want to invest in multimodal freight uh, approaches that can drive down the costs of shipping goods from the factory to the home, save consumers money, reduce emissions, increase profitability. Um, we also, we're moving into a world that is potentially, certainly by 2050, if not well beforehand, that is going to be filled with cars that can talk to each other, cars that can drive themselves. We're going to be living in a transportation system that is inherently a big data system. Um, that can create some amazing opportunities to optimize that system, but no individual company has the resources or really has the, the, sees the value in investing in how to optimize those resources. We've got the supercomputing power. Um, we've got the ability to create new facilities that can allow car companies to test approaches to automated cars, to radical lightweighting um, of those automated cars, to optimizing uh, control systems to drive down the costs of those um, vehicles and drive down emissions well beyond what you could even do just by efficiency or electric vehicles or fuel cells alone. Um, Next, and this is a really big chunk of the, of the pie here, at $750 million, we've been caught in this chicken and egg problem for decades, where car companies are understandably nervous about putting out a lot of alternative fuel cars because the infrastructure isn't in there, and oil companies and utilities and others are very nervous about putting out infrastructure until the cars are there. And so as a result, you have very slow progress in many cases in each. This would help break that logjam by uh, the same way we invested uh, in, in our highways in the 50s, investing in uh, infrastructure for fuels uh, to get stations, whether they're charging stations, renewable hydrogen stations, or appropriate biofuel stations, much more widely spread around the country to, to break that cycle, to break that chicken and egg cycle, and uh, get more and more alternative fuel vehicles out there. And then finally, we've got a clean fleets competition, because this isn't just about private sector. There's a lot of local and state governments out there with a lot of fleets that if they have some more resources, we've seen through, uh, through DERA, for example, the Diesel Emissions uh, Reduction Act, that if you get them some resources and challenge them to step up and compete for those resources, they will invest their own money in cleaner cars. Now, all of this, the plan would be, this would be funded 
um, by the, uh, the $10 barrel uh, oil feed that's been talked about. We know that that's a challenge, but we think it's the right time to have that conversation because the challenge we face in transportation is too big. Um, finally, and I'm not going to go into any detail here, we've got several different crosscuts um, at DOE. We're looking at modernizing our grid, working with our partners in the Office of Electricity. We're looking at um, modernizing the way we characterize and access uh, subsurface resources, both geothermal resources but also fossil fuel resources. We're looking at a world where, and where water could be just as, if not more precious of a commodity than energy going into the future. And we need to look for ways to drive down water use across our economy and drive up the efficiency and drive down the cost of taking salt water and turning it into fresh water for key parts of our nation and potentially the world um, that are going to be highly water stressed without that. And then finally, advanced materials. There's so much that we can do as we invest in composites and, and other materials to radically change everything from wind turbine blades to cars uh, to, to uh, HVAC units, as we talked about. Uh, this is just one example of the grid modernization program. Um, I won't go across this because I want to uh, shift over to other folks, but I think you can get a sense from this that we are looking at all different parts of the grid system with our partners at the Office of Electricity to make sure that we are improving the, the devices that go into the grid system, uh, improving the way we can monitor and sense the way the grid is working to optimize efficiency and minimize energy use. Uh, we're also looking at connections to transportation, we're looking at cybersecurity within the grid, we're looking at smart devices within the grid to optimize energy use, um, and we're investing significant resources through this into our national labs to put their world-class facilities to work to help develop, research, and modernize uh, our electricity grid. So with that, um, I'm uh, done. Look forward to your questions going forward. Great. Thank you very, very much. And uh, we will hear from our next two panelists, and then we will open it up for your questions, because I'm sure that there will be a lot of them. I think everybody knows of the important role that the Congressional Research Service uh, of the Library of Congress plays up here on the Hill, uh, that they are a very, very essential part of helping congressional offices and staffers uh, on both sides of the hill and, and as well as uh, congressional committees uh, do uh, the kinds of analysis that people often don't have the time to do in their own offices, uh, but CRS provides all sorts of, of very, very well-trained um, uh, specialists who really help provide solid analysis and information across all of these budget areas. And so we're delighted to have with us today Kelsey Brackmore, who is an Agricultural Conservation and Natural Resources Policy Specialist at CRS. And I would also mention that uh, in many prior years, Fred Sassin, who is uh, one of our colleagues at CRS, uh, and Fred works in the uh, uh, sustainable energy uh, and, and science policy area in terms of looking at, at efficiency and renewables as well. Uh, Fred is also here. And Kelsey, we are delighted to have you with us. Thanks, Carol. 
this is just in case you all have detailed questions. I have a lot of details in back. Huh. All those backup slides, right? <laughs> exactly. Great. So, good afternoon. I am not certain how many of you are familiar with CRS, or the Congressional Research Service. Carol just gave a good description, but I'll just say quickly that uh, we work exclusively for Congress to provide confidential, authoritative, objective, nonpartisan policy and legal analysis. So we are here today as a part of this discussion because Congress has cared about uh, renewable energy and energy efficiency in some way for some time. Um, the reasons for this interest vary, but include energy security, competitiveness, and lower carbon emissions, among other things. So DOE has gone into a lot of information on your budget. I am just going to speak about a few things. I've just picked a few things to discuss today. I'm going to spend the next 10 minutes speaking with you about some of the major changes within the budget request. I'm also going to spend some time on a relatively significant new proposal, the 21st Century Clean Transportation Plan. And then I'll conclude with some issues for congressional staff. Okay, so as far as the big picture is concerned, pertaining to DOE, EERE, this table pretty much sums it up. What we know is that DOE is requesting a total of $4.2 billion for FY 2017, 2.9 of which is discretionary, 1.3 of which is mandatory. For FY 2016, Congress enacted appropriations for EERE at a level of $2.1 billion, all of which was discretionary. So when we compare the discretionary FY 2017 request, to the FY 2016 enacted amount, that's where you can say DOE is asking for a 40% increase in their budget, or roughly $829 million more. And the requested increase actually follows what's happened in previous years, where DOE has requested a certain amount of funding, and then Congress has responded by providing a level lower than what was requested. Where it gets interesting is the comparison between the FY 2017 request total. And when I say request total, I mean the discretionary amount and the mandatory amount. And if you compare that to the FY 2016 enacted, which is discretionary only funding amount, that comparison yields a requested increase of $2.2 billion. So EERE is requesting an increase in funding. And these bullet points here briefly explain what DOE reports that it will do with that funding. Based on the budget request that I reviewed and sent to Congress, it looks like EERE is going to continue to do what they've always done, which is to focus on clean energy, renewable energy, and energy efficiency. Now, in general, EERE separates its funding into four categories. This slide and the next three slides show tables for those four categories. And it's all increases. I put this here. Can you hear me okay? It's just kind of in my way. Okay, what about here? Okay. Uh, thanks. So, and in general, for the four categories, it's all increases. There are no decreases at the line item level for these four categories. I have a group of tables here for the next three slides that show the difference between the FY 2017 request and the enacted amount. Um, you will also see a highlighted box on some of these tables, but that highlighted box just shows some of those line items that have some of the largest increases on a percent basis or percentage basis. That's not the only way to compare um, what is being requested against what was enacted last year. Some of you may care to look at the dollar amounts, which is also provided. So this slide here shows the funding comp comparison for the sustainable transportation category. That's the first of the four categories. In general, again, sustainable transportation is going to cover your electric vehicles, your vehicle efficiency, and your alternative fuels. So here I've highlighted the vehicle technologies line item, which is requesting a funding level at 51%. 
higher than what was enacted in FY 2016. Next, we have the energy efficiency category. This category typically covers energy efficiency improvement measures for homes, buildings, and industries. You may notice that EERE is requesting funding for the building technologies line item and FEM Federal Energy Management Program line item at a level 44% and 59% more respectively than what was enacted in FY 2016. The next category is renewable energy. This energy uh, aims to make solar, wind, water, and geothermal power cost competitive with conventional power. Here, uh, I have two boxes again highlighted. EERE is requesting funding for the wind energy line item and the geothermal technologies line item at a level 63% and 40% more respectively than what was enacted in FY 2016. And lastly, we have corporate support, which is just mainly your program management. I have one line item here highlighted. That's the facilities and technologies line, I'm sorry, let me get this name correct. Facilities and infrastructure line item. That's a level 48% more than what was enacted in FY 2016, but that's basically due to a budget structure change, which I will get to in my next slide. Okay, so again, all increases, no decreases. That said, however, there are some programmatic and budget structure changes. So there are some subprogram cuts. That includes reduced funding for a commercial buildings integration technology demonstration program and reduced funding for the initial stages of the city's LEAP program. I did come across one activity funding elimination. That was for the alternative fuel vehicle community partner projects that was initiated in FY 2016. And again, there is a budget structure proposal whereby EERE is requesting to consolidate in-rail site-wide facility support from a number of individual technology programs to one line item under that facilities and infrastructure program line item. So what's new? There are a few new initiatives contained in this request. They differ in scope, they differ in size, they differ in funding amount, and they differ in the funding source. I'll only discuss a few for today's presentation. So... First, we have uh, two, on one end, let's say, of this new EERE effort spectrum, um, we have a funding request for two smaller programs for two new initiatives, the Metropolitan Systems Initiative and the 3C Energy Program. Both of these initiatives are funded at less than $30 million, and both fall under an existing line item. Then if you go sort of to the middle of this new EERE effort spectrum, we have the Cross-Cutting Innovation Initiative or the Cross-Cutting Mission Innovation Initiative that was discussed previously. This is proposed to be funded at $215 million, and it was assigned a new line item in the budget. Then on the complete opposite end of this new EERE effort spectrum is the 21st Century Clean Transportation Plan, or as I've nicknamed, CCP. The CCP is a multi-agency effort. Uh, it is proposed by the administration to make smart and strategic investments to create a cleaner, more sustainable transportation system. Some of the other agencies involved in this effort include DOT and EPA. The administration is asking for a large sum of money for this effort, $320 billion over 10 years, all from mandatory funds set up at the various departments. This slide here shows some of the activities that DOE reports that it would work on should it receive the mandatory funding request for the CCP. 
this table shows how EERE would allocate that $1.3 billion mandatory funding being requested for the CTP. Note that 56% of the funding, or $750 million, would support the development of regional low-carbon fueling infrastructure. So what might congressional staff care about regarding this budget? Well, first, let's start with the CCP. The first concern or issue could be the source of funds. It's a request for mandatory funds, which for EERE is unprecedented. Second, there could be a concern about the lack of legislative detail. Uh, there is an absence of legislative language for this program, so it's not possible at this time for you to analyze the details of this program. It's not clear what authorization law DOE is referring to or proposing to in order for Congress to appropriate the funds if they choose to. DOT does present some language in its budget request, but I didn't come across any similar language in the DOE budget request. EERE administrative capacity. So the amount of money of the mandatory funding being requested for the CTP is about 64% of the FY 2016 EERE enacted appropriations. Does EERE have the administrative capacity to implement this amount of additional CTP funding? Also, the CTP is likely to require full implementation and coordination by all involved agencies in order to reach the desired outcomes. So is Congress going to fund all of the involved agencies should they support this effort? An uh, incomplete funding plan. It's not clear how much each department or each agency may request for each of the 10 years of the program or the 10-year schedule for this effort. How does Congress plan for this? How do the agencies plan for it? Also, depending on how EERE defines infrastructure, and if that definition includes ethanol blender pumps, because remember, one of the uh, stated goals or reported goals of the CTP is to support uh, low-carbon regional infrastructure. So if EERE defines infrastructure, and if that definition includes ethanol blender pumps, there is one particular related attempt uh, that happened in the past by another department that was dismissed by Congress. And specifically there, what I'm talking about is the use of REAP funds, or Rural and Energy for America program funds from USDA to install ethanol blender pumps that was discontinued by Congress through the 2014 Farm Bill. So some key questions to ask, will Congress support the CTP? If so, will they support it in its entirety? Presented here is a list of persistent concerns about EERE. How involved should the federal government be? What impact does the budget deficit have on the federal government's involvement? What influence will current energy prices have on research and development? And what effect will the ongoing rulemaking and implementation of environmental programs for energy production activities have on EERE, such as the Clean Power Plan? So if you'd like additional information on EERE or on the budgets or any other uh, EERE-related requests, please feel free to contact myself or my colleague, Fred Sassine. We're definitely here to help congressional staff as they go forward, and we're always willing to meet with stakeholders to chat about what's going on in the field. So that concludes my presentation, and I thank you for your attention. Thanks very much, Kelsey. Uh, lots of food for thought there, and I'm sure lots of areas in which we could discuss um, in much more detail. So I now want to turn for sort of our panel closing wrap-up to Scott Sklar, who is the chair of the steering committee for the Sustainable Energy Coalition, 
And he is also the president of the Stella Group, which does a lot of work for uh, both uh, private clients as well um, in infrastructure, military projects, commercial and industrial in terms of the blending of the technologies to provide for real energy optimization. And Scott also has been an adjunct professor, continues to be an adjunct professor at George Washington University um, and is a very popular teacher there. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> I'm the grouchy one at the end here, so thank you. Um, I, as you can see from above, uh, my company blends all these clean energy technologies all over the world. I have projects on every continent, including Antarctica. And I'm an, I teach two interdisciplinary courses at the George Washington University with students from the engineering school, the law school, the business school, and the science, part of the arts and science school. And the whole pitch is you need the whole portfolio, and you've heard some of that here. Um, and uh, lastly, I also chair the U.S. Department of Commerce Advisory Board on Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency. So as you see uh, from the chart back here that uh, we have a good story to tell. Uh, you know, I saw, by the way, I worked nine years in the U.S. Senate in the 70s when energy became an issue. And if anybody said you could grow GDP and use less energy, uh, you were thrown off the hill. That was considered heresy. Uh, I am happy to tell you that's exactly what's happened. And this, this chart with uh, EI numbers uh, shows that. That the fact is we can grow our economy by using less energy. And I want to remind you it's always less expensive to save energy than generated from any source. So if you can, why wouldn't you do it? Um, the other thing I, I, I want to say is that uh, 2015, private sector investment, we're not talking about government investment here, but the private sector in clean energy, in renewables, uh, has put in $329 billion, private sector money, in, into these technologies and applications. Again, when I started in the 1970s, it was under $50 million, so to see that in the over $300 billion is uh, quite a big deal. And it's expanding all the time. I don't, I'm doing projects in the poorest countries of the world, and these technologies are absolutely economic. And as mentioned earlier, this is from IRENA, uh, which is the International Agency on Renewable Energy, and this really uh, shows where the jobs are globally in these technologies. And, you know, we're over six, uh, six million jobs, by the way, in the United States, solar uh, employs more people than the coal industry. If you go on the Solar Foundation website, uh, wind is uh, uh, you know, uh, about uh, two-thirds that. And so uh, we're seeing huge increases in jobs. And unlike the traditional technologies, uh, they're not at one or a group of, a group of states. You've heard, you know, where the coal states are, the states that have uranium, or the states that have gas. These are spread across the country, across the resources. But I want to talk to you about disruptive technology. This is the McKinsey chart, and you can see renewables are up there on the top left. But advanced materials, as what Mr. Friedman said at DOE, is what drives the technology, why we have offshore wind, and why we have marine energy technology, one of the fastest growing renewables is because guess what? 
uh, we have new materials that can sit in water and last for 20 years. So how cool is that? Energy storage on the lowest left, on the lower left. I work with 28 different commercial kinds of battery types in all my projects. That's astounding to my military even more than that. And then, of course, on the, on the right-hand side, the Internet of Things, cloud technology, all of that, all these, all these technologies power that, and all these services enable more distributed renewable technologies. There are the, the plethora of performance packages, on-site diagnostics, monitoring real-time, is now uh, is all reliant on the advanced Internet of Things and the mobile Internet. So, again, why we do it? Energy is the single largest cause of our trade debt. It is the single largest cause of air and water pollution in addition to emissions causing climate change. It is the single largest income source for terrorism. It is the largest user and waster of water. We use more water in our energy system than we do growing our food. It is not acceptable. It is not sustainable. Um, I want to keep this going. So I'm going to skip a couple of slides. But um, I do want to point out that uh, Ken Bassong, who runs the Sunday campaign, sort of reviews uh, once a month what's coming out of the federal government statistics and what's really happening on the ground. And I have to say, he. Uh, uh, he does it with humor, uh, but uh, you know uh, what you'll find is he just issued um, uh, his uh, 2016 monthly energy infrastructure report. And he looked at the at FERC and showed that in fact renewables put more on the new on the grid than any other source of, of electricity, and that's something you need to know. And by the way, that has happened for the last five years in a row. So again, was considered heretical before I, uh, when I started my career. Uh, so, um, and so uh, FERC's uh, December 2015 energy infrastructure update revealed that renewables accounted for 64% of new electrical generating capacity installed last year. So that's pretty astounding. Uh, EIA uh, issued its latest uh, monthly and basically um, showed again that uh, renewable grew by 2% uh, compared to, to 2014. So all of this stuff is growing. So you looked at the chart here. This is the chart of the renewable programs. And I'm going to point out some inconsistencies to you. First, I want to say the good news. Mom always said, say the good things first. I'm going to do that. Yay, Mom. Uh, this is the first budget I've seen that hasn't thrown a technology overboard. This happens in every administration, including the earlier days of this one. But you can count every administration. They, they say, oh, we have to show we're fair, so we're going to throw something over the boat. And they would do that. And then the, the poor little industry that's uh, the one thrown over the boat has to go fight its way into recognition and survivability. The good news, that did not happen for this budget. Great. Kudos. That's good. One glaring omission is biomass. They have biofuels, but you have actually a very important renewable program, and that is biomass, growing matter and waste. You can make it into fuel, but it's as capable to make it into energy, as capable to make it into not just electricity, but thermal energy, 
a very important part of our energy mix, and in many cases quite cost-effective. Plus, we have a lot of waste in this country. Huge. So the chance to, and by the way, to intercept degrading biomass from going into methane, a more potent, though shorter-lived greenhouse gas, is not a good energy policy. So while the, while the budget is very good on biofuels, it is actually uh, a black hole on biopower and biothermal. And that actually needs to be corrected. Um, the solar program, the wind programs, are doing very robustly. Uh, the water program, I'm going to talk about a little more. But I do want to point out the geothermal program. Geothermal is one of the programs always thrown off the boat. And I can, I'm happy to email, so if I get an email from you, to give you the 32 studies I give to my students to read on renewable and energy efficiency and storage. But uh, the one study I like to use is MIT that shows with technology we have today, geothermal can cost effectively meet um, conservatively 10% of our energy use. Uh, and it's not all in the West, it's under the Appalachians as well. We have huge resources in geothermal. I'm happy to hear from Mr. Freeman. We're looking at new kinds of drilling technologies and approaches. We need it. It cannot be overlooked. It's 24-hour power. It's ridiculous to waste the heat coming out of this earth. Ridiculous. Um, I'm also going to, uh, I'm, I'm skipping along here because I want to be, um, be right, uh, uh, cover what I need. But, um, the, the buildings program, emerging technologies, is really going to be very important here. If you want to integrate technology, energy efficiency and renewables and storage, you need to really have platforms where they can be brought together so industry and the research community can learn before it can enter into the market, and so we can prepare for the codes and standards programs so they'll actually let it get into the market. My biggest problem in bringing these new technologies into my projects are the codes and standards people don't have enough education about them. Some of the concerns are correct. You don't want the building to burn down. Not a good thing, so I understand. But the fact of the matter is we have technologies and approaches not only for public safety, but also even better control and even greater safety than we enjoy now. Um, I'm flipping along hydropower. Um, the hydropower and water technologies, I think the, the real issue is we have 88,000 dams in the United States with no generation on them that theoretically can be converted. We have turbines on older dams that can be increased in output by 20 or 30%. We have new run-of-river technologies that don't need dams or diversions, therefore much more ecosystem-friendly that we want to take advantage of. And then we have the marine and tidal and, uh, sorry, tidal and wave and ocean thermal, ocean current technologies, $8 billion last year, uh, investment by the private sector around the world. We are not the top investors. So Scotland, Spain, Australia, United States, and then China. 
And that's how it's going. I've toured a lot of these this past year. It is phenomenal what's happening. And I want to remind you, most people live near water, on the coasts or along rivers. So having this 24-hour power that's fish and marine ecosystem friendly makes a lot of sense. And it would be crazy not to support it. And the Hydro Association has a couple of conferences based here in April in D.C., so I hope uh, those of you interested will do it, and it's the whole marine system. Wind power, I just want to say, uh, and DOE is doing it in their budget, looking at the offshore side of this, uh, we are slower than what Northern Europe is doing, what Japan is doing, what Spain is doing. We've got to turn that around. We have a lot of low shoreline, lots of, uh, lots of capability here and wonderful wind regimes. We should not give that up. Uh, lastly, I want to remind you, this is our planet, and uh, it is our, the only real nest we have, so these technologies do matter. And I hope that if you have any questions, uh, you want to get the 32 studies. I have two zero energy buildings in Arlington I give tours all the time to that are off the grid. And I also have the uh, Dead Zero building at the Washington Navy Yard I give tours on, uh, that I also did, to let you better see the technologies and touch them. Because, as you can see, they are going to really shape the future and be really part of our, our global economy. Thank you very much. Thanks. So you can always enroll at GW to take one of his classes too, right? So it, I think what's really, um, to me anyway, is always really compelling in terms of listening to these different perspectives. Uh, that first of all, energy is so big, it absolutely runs everything. And there is so much going on and so many changes we're seeing so much now come to fruition. And to me, it is also so fascinating how these things are also so interconnected. And it's, you know, the reference that Scott just made to, you know, with regard to thinking about the materials research that has affected so many other things in terms of technologies for, that can be used for um, uh, whether it's offshore wind or other equipment that's in water or how it's used with regard to what's happening in terms of batteries or construction materials, etc. It's It's so fascinating how all of these things really do create synergies and each kind of build upon the other, which is another piece that I think is so important for us to understand in terms of looking at the budget why things are being invested in. But let's open it up for your questions and comments. Uh, who wants to go first? We've got about 15 minutes. Okay, and if you could identify yourself, please. Hi, and just wait for the mic. There we go. Hi, my name is Amir Rafan. I'm a reporter with Environment and Energy. I'm wondering if the panel could address, given the Supreme Court stay of the Clean Power Plan, uh, it seems technology is going to have to do a lot of heavy lifting as far as reducing carbon emissions. I'm wondering what that does as far as the strategy for EERE in terms of reframing a lot of these programs as primarily carbon reducing versus economic growth or technology development. Okay, everybody will want to take a whack at that. Go ahead, Dave. Well, let me take that uh, question in two directions. First of all, um, you know, we think the, uh, the administration believes, I believe, the Clean Power Plan is on very solid uh, ground, and we expect to prevail uh, as that moves forward. Um, 
but we are moving forward. I think as you saw from my slides, as, as you heard from folks today, renewable power, energy efficiency, they are moving forward rapidly um, with the Clean Power Plan and without the Clean Power Plan. States across the country, um, whether they have renewable uh, energy standards or whether they're investing in renewable power to improve their economies, to create more resilient grids, um, investing in energy efficiency to lower costs, also again to create more resilient grids and or more re resilient homes and businesses. Um, the clean energy race is on and uh, I, I actually would expect that we will probably ultimately see more renewable energy and more energy efficiency uh, by 2030 than even the clean power plan uh, requires. In fact, NREL recently uh, published a study doing analysis of the very recent investment and uh, production tax credit extensions, uh, those extensions are going to have a huge impact on the renewable energy sector. Uh, really, they are uh, extending for at least five years um, those sectors dramatically, in some cases, doubling um, the growth rates uh, that we've seen over the last few years thanks to those investments. And under one of the scenarios they did with uh, lower gas prices, um, there were actually lower CO2 emissions than the Clean Power Plan would have required. So uh, I see the Clean Power Plan being upheld, and I see industry and states and our nation moving forward even faster on renewable energy and energy efficiency. Uh, and I think we're going to play a key role in that. Um, I'd like to say there, there's been a lot of comment on this, and I, I also agree with Mr. Freeman that um, it will ultimately prevail. But you didn't see a lot of utilities suing. These were partisan governors suing. And most of the bigger utilities are saying, actually, they, they're already on the course to meet the goals of the Clean Power Plan. Um, so you do have 32 states now that with renewable energy portfolio standards as law or solid goals. Uh, you do have five-year extensions of solar and wind, though Congress failed at the last minute to extend all the other renewables and energy efficiency tax credits. That's like crazy. Why would you just pick two. So that needs to be changed, and some of the leadership on both sides of the aisle are thinking on how they're going to do that. But that's also essential. And lastly, um, aside from the renewable portfolio standards at the state level, and um, you also have uh, the Clean Air Act requirements, and of course the MAC rule uh, is, again, the Mercury rule is, uh, is back in, uncontested. Uh, Supreme Court failed to hear that. So the issue is they still have to deal with uh, sulfur, nitrous oxides, particulates, and mercury. And if that isn't going to drive more renewables, energy efficiency in the system, I don't know what is. Did you want anything else? Okay. Um, it, and to add to what Scott said in terms of the renewable portfolio standards, we also know that um, I'm not sure on the number whether it's 25 um, states have an energy efficiency resource standard as well. So that in many ways, certainly comments that I've been hearing are that a number of states are moving forward and that in a number of ways the Clean Power Plan is kind of following the trends as opposed to leading any trends. Um, so, uh, other questions or comments? Um, we'll go back here first and then up here. Hi, this, oh, I'm, I'm Phil Murawski from Congressman Spears' office, California. 
Um, I wanted to ask about rooftop solar, which is very big in California, and also your opinion on what Nevada has recently changed, and utility companies kind of changing the fees for that, and how you see the future of rooftop solar, both economically and for energy. Um, I'll start with that. Um, and, and I also ran the solar trade group for 15 years, so I might know that. Um, rooftop solar it can be quite cost effective. Again, I have it on both my office buildings and also my home. Um, and as photovoltaics come down, again, in large part first from the R&D program, but frankly for industry, just building larger manufacturing plants and getting away the barriers, um, and companies creating leasing approaches uh, for it so homeowners can sort of pay as you go. And in many cases, the lease, the cost of the monthly lease is a lot less than what you would pay for the utility from electricity. The electric utility industry is in a quandary because you have all these disruptive technologies. And frankly, they and their regulators at the state level have not caught up. Very similar to what was happening in telecom when cellular was coming in. Same issue. So the utilities who are not growing as fast because of these LED light bulbs and weatherized buildings and now had solar water heating and photovoltaics and small wind systems and geothermal heat pumps, they are not growing as fast. In fact, their growth is very flat. They could always count on 6% a year. They can't count on that. So they're trying to fight back with standby charges and everything else, and that's what happened in Nevada. The utilities asked for standby charges, and of course the solar industry said, what the hell, you're going to, uh, to slow the market down when people want solar energy. And of course, Nevada tried to make it retroactive, and you've got a deal to get credited. Remember, you're, you're, whatever electricity you don't use, you send back through the meter turns the meter backwards and you get netted at the retail rate. They like that. So they're saying you're changing the deal midstream after we bought the solar. So the bottom line is they did vote finally again that they're not doing it retroactively because frankly that's against federal law. And they are going to push off the standby charges, the extra fees that they're saying is needed to pay for their share of the grid. Uh, for a few more years, so it's going to keep the, the solar market going. Some big players, though, have backed out of the state anyway. But the issue is that's not going to get them out of the jam, because all that's going to happen is sort of what I did before there were interconnection standards. Batteries have come way down, and all my projects now, I'm using battery banks. Why would I want to be paid or given a fee by some utility for energy I'm generating. I'll keep the energy generation behind my the fence or in the building and use it later on when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. So I think there's going to be this, that what's happening in about 18 states on these state charges against solar and some of these other distributed energy sources is there actually going to be new regulatory models because it cannot continue because the technology is going to overtake what they're trying to forestall. I would just, excuse me. I would just add. I think the regulatory picture will work its way out over time. There, there will be some more bumps, but uh, this is another one of those cases where the long arc, I think, is going to end up uh, in the right place over time. I agree that storage can play more and more of a role. 
you can do a lot, certainly at the utility scale on PV without storage, um, but so, as you talk about uh, residential or community solar, which I think is another really exciting um, innovation where maybe it doesn't make sense to put the panels uh, on, some, on a bunch of people's houses, maybe it makes sense for a community to invest together in either a portion of a large solar plant um, or, or their own uh, solar array so that the whole community can uh, benefit from that system. I, I hate to use the pun to a certain degree, but uh, I think the future is bright when it comes to those uh, resources. And we're going to make sure uh, we already have our sunshot goals to uh, continue driving down the cost, not just of utility-scale solar, uh, but also uh, of the smaller units. We've got a lot of work focused on the soft costs uh, to make sure that red tape um, and the cost of the balance of plant, et cetera, don't get in the way. Mm -hmm. And just wait, there's more. Um, this year we're going to be uh, really digging in and trying to look at what about 2030? Because we're already 70% of the way to our 2020 goals. Um, we need to and we will start thinking about 2030 to see how much further we should push that technology uh, as we're pushing down the cost of batteries and power electronics. So uh, I think there's a lot more opportunity out there. So stay tuned, and we'll try to take a look at some of those other changes as they come along. Um, there was a question up here. Good afternoon. I'm Colette Barasso, and I work in Senator Gillibrand's office. Um, thanks for coming out today. It was a very interesting talk. Um, and I just wanted to ask a question about the technology race. I find that very interesting, and I see some parallels to the space race. And I just wondered whether there might be opportunities for government-government partnerships and other international business partnerships. Uh, the simple answer is absolutely. Uh, and that is really part of the foundation of mission innovation is, is a recognition that the United States needs to step up, um, but so does the rest of the world. And one of the things... Uh, Secretary Moniz and others are looking at is how mission innovation shouldn't just be a one-off announcement. Um, the goal is to have a sustained effort, um, maybe tied to the Clean Energy Ministerial, maybe something uh, more broad, where we keep talking to the different nations. In fact, if you look at the mission innovation uh, announcement, one of the things uh, that's talked about is should we start sharing roadmaps? Should we think about optimizing our investments based on different regions. Um, but that said, I will still say our goal is to win. Um, we'll cooperate, we'll work with others, but I think it's in our national interest to make sure um, that we be good partners, but at the end of the day, I'd like to see us being the ones um, generating our own power and, and manufacturing our own units and ideally shipping some of those overseas so we can turn that um, energy deficit, uh, energy trade deficit, completely upside down. So uh, you're saying partnering to race and race to that win, okay? Well, we have over 7 billion people on this planet. Half either do not have electricity or have electricity less than 10 hours a day. And they desperately want clean technology. Uh, they don't want to import 100% of it, and they don't need to. And I think that's the issue. You can have a win-win here. And so what we're really trying to do is work relationships where the, the U.S. can send the more sophisticated components and also invest in they 
uh, creating the rest of their components, assembling it, installing it, and getting the jobs. So this isn't like just importing oil, but you're just switching oil with solar panels or wind turbines or marine turbines. Um, this is a sort of a whole new way of, of doing things, of growing together. And I, I agree uh, with Mr. Freeman, we can do that and win and increase exports, but actually we can increase economic growth of the developing world in a far more advantageous way and much faster than the traditional model. And so uh, the more we understand that complexity and what each side can, can do to grow, then you get some great relationships. And we're trying to do that through the Power Africa program, through uh, some of the greenhouse uh, gas uh, programs in, in India and China, through some of the electric city access programs in Central and South America to, to try to, to bring some of these to light and build uh, strategic partners in those countries for the long term. And one quick addition to that, and I wanted to tie to one of the comments uh, Scott mentioned about hydro. Um, we One of the technologies that was featured when Mission Innovation was launched is, is a hydropower technology by a little company called Netel. And basically, this is hydropower at a small scale. You're talking a unit that's maybe 10, 20 feet high um, that could be used in rural areas. In fact, Apple is investing in this technology uh, to power one of their data centers. And this is a company that was uh, supported by EERE, by the Department of Energy. It's also now um, potentially going to be going to India and other parts of the world to provide rural hydropower to help uh, some of these developing economies grow with uh, their own power. And, and I would also just note that um, Scott talked about uh, putting, uh, that there are dams out there without turbines, that there are older dams that can be repowered. Uh, we are planning this year to uh, release a report, a hydrovision report, which is going to lay out uh, for the United States a bottom-up analysis of what all the different resources are and where we can potentially go with those different resources. So another uh, another thing to keep an eye out for. Great. Thank, thank you. And I also wanted to mention in terms of looking at other nations, um, there's a lot of um, innovative and work with regard to renewables going on in island nations, uh, which is absolutely critical. And I know that that's been part of DOE's work and some of the national labs have been heavily involved in that as well. And I wanted to mention that next week we will be doing a briefing on geothermal and the Geothermal Energy Association has a big international showcase that is occurring um, also next week. And there are any number of developing nations that are part of that. So I wanted to mention that it's a, another very, very exciting um, area that you should hopefully um, you'll you'll participate in or look at our website and, and uh, learn more about all of that because it ties into everything that we've been hearing about today. Um, any last questions? We've got time for a couple more. Okay, right here in the in the front. Just wait for the mic. It's coming. It's coming. Thank you so much. I'm Nepal for UNESCO Task Force. My question is. What I heard today is very impressive. Beyond specific uh, alliances, international projects, given the turning point, paradigm shift we are going through now, climate change, energy, 
would you think it's possible for the United States to have an educational, promotional, in policy making, but broad education uh, in developing as well developed countries through an international cooperation, including specifically with the European Union and possibly Japan? Uh, because there are so many changes, and we have it in UNESCO, we call it intangible cultural heritage. How to inject more education to better prepare for this? Benefit? Well, and in fact, it's a great question. In fact, I just teached, uh, taught a course with the European <coughs> Union uh, for uh, players here in Washington, no less, and the international community. But the uh, Department of Energy has supported, but so have uh, universities. A lot of uh, different kinds of learning programs, and a lot of uh, some of them are distance learning, and some of them, of course, are web-enabled learning. But let me tell you what my problem is with all of this: is I'm finding a lot of it, that frankly, is not practical. Meaning, it's great science, but it's not really enabling people in the way they do it, and it's not necessarily regionally or even uh, energy appropriate to the people you're talking to. So I really think it really uh, goes on, on UNESCO and UNEP, UN Environmental Program, UN Development Program, World Health Organization, to really start uh, soliciting and having some kind of review process so that we can funnel in the appropriate program. And I'm going to give you one minute. I'm sorry to do this, but during the Ebola crisis, uh, I was going around, including to the World Health Organization, saying these, these rural health clinics have no electricity. There's tons of technology out there. In fact, that you have, you, that you have been using and specking for years that you're not doing. And I was going doing it with the embassies, several of us as well. And it was like... They had never heard of this stuff at all. And, and that's way too late. That's inexcusable during an uh, international tragedy that was going on that have, could have profound implications for the entire world. So it just showed to me again that we're doing this very inelegantly. We have a lot of good stuff coming. Again, DOE supports the stuff, but so does the Department of Agriculture, so does EPA. Uh, so there, there are several agencies here and international entities, but it's all hodgepodged up. And so the you international entities need to stand up a little bit and guide it so it can have more use and more practicality. I guess I'll do it. So I threw it right back at you. Sorry. But great question. Thank you. Okay. Is there one last question? Not hearing any. I want to say thank you very, very much to our panelists. And please feel free to follow up with any of them or with the EESI if you've got other questions, you need more information, uh, because that's what we want to do is to make sure that you really are getting the kind of information that you need so that everybody can have a better chance to um, uh, make better informed decisions as we all look at these issues closely because they have very big impacts on what we all do. So thank you all for coming, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next week at the geothermal briefing. Thank